So let's move on to the Western Conference here for kind of the part two segment. I don't. I, I think we cannot even begin to talk about the West without talking about the Gobert trade and the ramifications of that and everything there is to know. Personally, because I don't think we've actually talked about the Gobert trade, like in terms of the details and the impacts or whatever. One of my biggest winners is the Utah Jazz in this offseason. They got a first-round pick for Royce O'Neal, which is so damn impressive, especially because I don't think Brooklyn saw the Dallas-Utah series from round one where Luka just kicked the shit out of Royce O'Neal every play. Getting all those picks and the rotation players you could flip for picks and Minnesota's last two young prospects with uh, their 2020 guy, Balnara, I think, and then 22 with, uh, uh, with the Auburn kid. Getting all that value and you could still have Mitchell and stuff or you could trade Mitchell, which I, I highly advise they don't. All this flexibility moving forward. You t- trade Gobert at the peak of his powers and is the peak, more importantly, of his trade value in the league. You screw over the Kevin Durant market, which is awesome for everyone else but Brooklyn. It, it's great all around for everyone in the NBA and especially for Utah. I absolutely agree. There's a time in every NBA team's life where they have to look at themselves in the mirror and decide that things just aren't going to work as they currently are presently constituted. So that's what the Utah Jazz decided to do. They were able to sell on Gobert when they still had a legitimate, sizable market for him. And unlike a potential move to Phoenix, which I thought was probably a better move that the Jazz could have made with a potential DeAndre Ayton and also getting a promising young player like campaign was also potentially in the move to Utah, which I think would have made more sense. But the deal that the jazz were able to strike with the Minnesota Timberwolves, I could not have been more ecstatic about as well as the Royce O'Neal move because now the jazz are getting a ton of picks, which they can continue to move themselves if they want to Danny Ainge, as we know is no stranger to making questionable calls, but at least he's going to get on the phone and make them. And then with the Royce O'Neal deal, there's one first-round pick there. The Jazz got four first-round picks, and essentially five, when you consider Walker Kessler was a first-round pick from this season from the Minnesota Timberwolves. So essentially five players, or five picks, three players. Now, I think that Malik Beasley will ultimately be getting cut from the Jazz roster because Jordan Clarkson already plays that role. But Beverly and Vanderbilt are two of the best defenders in the league at their own positions when it comes to being able to to man up and keep their feet in front of the guy in front of them. So the Jazz need more bodies like that. And if the Jazz decide to make Donovan Mitchell the full-time point guard and they continue to shop Mike Conley to see if there's a market for him... I think that the Jazz are going to be able to add another potential wing kind of player, and they're just going to be trying to get bigger at those middle-sized positions, which is something the Jazz just really straight-up needed a lot more of. And now it honestly feels like the Jazz obviously have the hole when it comes to their starting center position, but we already know the weaknesses of Rudy Gobert, and it's everything on the offensive end besides setting solid screens, freeing up guys that way and rolling to the basket. So Walker Kessler, who has some kind of a jump shot to his arsenal, is yet another kind of weapon that Will Hardy, as well as the Utah Jazz staff, will be able to implement. It was ultimately a W from that point of view. The one place where I would push back from the Utah Jazz point of view here is... Donovan's never really played point guard at any point in his career throughout college and pro. So if he's going to make that move to full-time point guard, which it does make sense ultimately and go more of the Damian Lillard route throughout the trajectory of his career, the Jazz at that point need to add a legitimate front court scorer. And Boyan Bogdanovich is not that. I thought that Bogdanovich was going to be the guy that the Jazz tried to move the most this offseason. And if there is a move still out there to be made, it would be adding a player of that sort that's 6'9", can shoot the three on catch and shoots, can handle the ball a bit, and be able to guard multiple positions. But besides that, that would be asking for a borderline all-star. The Jazz, I think, knocked it out of the park this offseason so far. 
And the other thing, too, this is the classic Danny Ainge playbook because when he was with Boston, I forget, I think this was in 02 or 03, Boston makes the conference finals in a horrible year where their best players were Paul Pierce, who was super young, and Antoine Walker, who was an all-star, by the way. All-star Antoine Walker, which is it goes to show how far the NBA's gone. Hey, he was a really good shooter, but that was about it. Well, no, he was, yeah, he was a good shooter who made under 30% from three. <laughs> he, he famously played in the three-point contest when he shot 31% from three in the year that he got invited, which, kind of, which that's also the NBA for the 2000s for you. But anyway, I, Boston, the following year after that, got swept in the second round, and Angel's like, we've peaked. He dumped Antoine Walker for assets and rebuilt around Pierce. When the KG and Pierce thing ran its course in Boston, he traded all of them for peak value before anything else happened. He, he's doing the same thing again, getting Will Hardy, the young coach who's going to take time to develop and will be in not the spotlight. It won't be like Steven Silas with Houston where there's just like a headache of a situation. It's actually a, a nice situation for Will Hardy. Getting Gobert, like, my question to you, because I think I've, a- I've a- asked this to you before, but I want to get your thoughts just for the record again. What was the breaking point for this Utah team? Was it the bubble 2020 where they blow the 3-1 lead? Was it 21 where they blow game six when they're up 26 points and just nuke it? Or was it this past year losing multiple games when Luka was not playing and you lost to Jalen Brunson? I feel like 21 was kind of the more devastating one, but... There's a case for all three of those, like as nail in the coffins. You hit the nail on the head. 21 was certainly the worst of those. In 20, I think it's fair to assume, even though the Jazz had had some good games and actually had won the season series against the Clippers, that even if they had squeaked by, they were probably not going to beat that Clippers team in a seven-game series, given the fact that the Jazz just basically fell off a cliff with their defensive depth after Gobert would come off the floor and there's no way to slow down some of those Clippers players from getting to the rim whereas when they came back in 21 every player on the team got better considerably as well as the bench itself got better so the Jazz had legitimate ways and counters to handle teams that would be able to exploit their really weaknesses on the perimeter defensively as they still always had But Gobert himself got better offensively and was able to make up for some of his own weaknesses. The thing that really bit the Jazz in 2021 was their inability to be able to close out to shooters and keep their feet in front. And that was certainly the best Jazz team that I've seen of my lifetime. And as it showed, they had the number one record in the league. And they had a two-games-to-none series lead. Basically, the one thing that the Jazz were just missing was that 1B to Mitchell's 1A, which they are not going to have, quite frankly, certainly as a free agent destination that is Utah. So they're going to have to be able to make that up somehow via trade. And that was their best chance to be able to squeak through, given the fact that the Lakers were already done. And who knows, if the Jazz get past the Clippers and make it to the Western Conference Finals. It's them and the Suns for the well, Western Conference. So, and that would have been one of the all-time toss-ups out of the Western Conference. That's why I kind of believe 21, because I think the context matters where Utah has their best, they peak at their regular season compared to any other year for the Gobert-Mitchell era. They come off the pandemic year where it was like the perfect rebound from the 2020 shenanigans and the whole rumors that Mitchell and Gobert were feuding. And look at this record. You look at it. Golden State was uh, not Golden State yet like last year. Denver, the Murray injury happens. They're done. The clip, the uh, Lakers are hor- are horrible and they fall back down to earth. Uh, Phoenix is the only real team that kind of like elevates themselves, kind of like Utah did. And that was it. It was a two-man race in the, in the Western Conference. And... It's also losing to the Clippers without Kawhi. That's the crazy part. No Kawhi Leonard, too. Like, you lost to Terrence Mann. And Doncic the following year. Yeah. It's yeah. all heartbreaking, and it's because the team had no real other way to create a shot outside of when the play breaks down. Just everything falls on Mitchell. Well, I also can't underrate, though, the 20... Like, I can't underrate either collapse, because the, the, the 3-1 collapse against Denver was really bad, but the fact that it happened twice with Denver, maybe it's not the biggest deal in the world, but the... the, <laughs> the I, I still can't get over, though, 
losing the games without Luka. Because, like, that was just bad. Like, Jalen Brunson, the 40, what was it, 42-point game in game three or four to save Dallas? Yeah, he like, six uh. threes. And he's a, he hit six threes, and he's a guy that didn't even make two on average. <laughs> it's the most anti-Utah performance. <laughs> so, okay, so Utah clearly won. By the way, to break down the terms of the trade, because I have an article coming out on this. Uh, Utah gets Malik Beasley, Patrick Beverly, and Jared Vanderbilt. They get Balmaro and Kessler, who both those two were Minnesota's two of their last three picks in the draft. They get a pick swap in 26, a top five lottery pick in 29, and then unprotected picks in 23, 25, and 27. Like 240 cents on the dollar for, uh, for the Utah Jazz here. Yep, all those players on the table, and really what it is, it's five first-round picks because Walker Kessler was a first-round pick this year, and he's going to be given probably the backup center spot, I would assume, to Son Whiteside, who gets to start again, at least in theory. That's a huge minus, obviously, but we'll see what happens there. And then Bulmaro, we'll see if he continues to develop Beasley, like I mentioned, I don't think will make the roster. But Beverly and Vanderbilt will both certainly be welcomed with open arms because the Jazz have not had defenders like those two in quite a while. The last time that I remember the Jazz having a non-straight-up center be able to defend like that would have been Andre Kirilenko. I was going to say, AK-47, man. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he was Mr. Triple-Double, and he's not even the last... Jazz man to have a triple double is Carlos Boozer. <laughs> Jazz currently have the longest triple double drought of any team in the league. That's actually crazy when you think about it. And, and Mitchell, he could get a triple double, but it's, it's very maybe now that you don't have a center, maybe can, are difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah he won't, you won't have a center though going forward. So, so I, I mean, I love the Utah off season. It was one of those like because the other thing too, and then we'll move on. I did. A, I just did a, a power ranking of the Western Conference where we drafted teams and tried to create an order. And there was honestly 12 teams that could have made the playoffs this year because the only ones that are tanking are OKC, Houston, and San Antonio. Like, guaranteed they're going to be bad. No other team's going to be bad. So if you're Utah, like, I don't want to pull Sacramento and embrace the 10th seed or, you know, pull – uh, one like the Lakers, just like yes, we're gonna be the ninth seed. Like hell yeah, I'm so excited. Like if you're if you're Utah, you capitalize on the Gobert. They also got super lucky, by the way, that Gobert received interest from Atlanta and these other teams. And Minnesota was like, shit, no Gobert. Let's just dump everything we have. Like, they got lucky from that too, which helped out. <laughs> yep, that's the mastermind of Danny Ainge. Do what it takes to get the bare minimum in order to have a appropriately relevant team but not really pull the strings to the point where you're going after the big name players and you're attracting them to come to utah because ultimately if donovan mitchell doesn't want to be there long term then there's going to be no reason for those players to ever want that to happen so i'm going to give the next winner here i think we both alluded to it denver is a clear winner here which is funny because they have arguably the worst move in free agency which is signing deandre jordan again but but the case for the Denver here is like somehow Jokic makes these Bruce Brown types better and if there was one team Bruce Brown could play in besides Brooklyn it would be Denver because of the shooting and Jokic's passing you now have two perimeter defenders that can bolster that defense as much as I loved Will Barden and Monte Morris I do think there was a case of like these guys are great in the regular season they can hold down the fort but when it comes to like winning meaningful games they're just too small and too defensively prone to be attacked where you won't have that with KCP uh, or uh, or Bruce Brown. I mean, with this trade, though, you're banking on DeJounte Murray being healthy. Uh, you're also banking on Bones Highland being like a stable backup point guard. But Ish Smith isn't a bad regular season option. And I like Denver's offseason, honestly. Like Michael Porter's going to be healthy. Murray's going to be assumed to be healthy. I have Denver currently as a top, as one of the, the eight the tier contenders right now with like Golden State, maybe Phoenix, everything's just status quo and the Clippers. Denver's looking great for next season. 
Oh, I totally agree. I think if you're talking about potentials to get over the top and actually win it all, they would be right at the beginning of that conversation, or certainly within the top three to four teams in the Western Conference, because they're going to employ the back-to-back MVP. And assuming that Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. are able to get back to somewhere near near where they were when they first acquired Aaron Gordon, you remember what that Denver Nuggets team looked like, right? They, they were. were I actually did a pod with a guy. They they were six and one, and I was gonna do a pod. Or they were five and one after the Gordon trade. And I remember I was planning a pod to talk about Denver as a sleeper contender. And the pod was actually about the how does Denver move forward with the Murray injury? It was horrible timing because like literally that team again. It's similar to the Jazz case in twenty one. The Western Conference was so hobbled. I think Denver could have honestly at least made the finals and at least taken Milwaukee to six or seven. Jokic is that good. Like, Jokic has really been good this past couple of years. Like, we're talking already in a seven-year sample. He could be a top 50 player ever. If you actually just, like, looked at it and were like, okay, like, can I make a case for this guy? It's not improbable. He's a back-to-back MVP who's taking your team now with a bunch of shit to pretty – pretty like, he's he's maximized a lot of talent that's not really so NBA talent so <laughs> – yeah, he's a four-time All-NBA player. He's a two-time MVP. And he's also considerably gotten better on the defensive end. So really his only weakness is now something that he's at a bare minimum, a slight advantage, slight pos- positive in the NBA. Plus you add in Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr., who in theory are going to come back near where they were a couple of years ago. And Murray still has some major additions that he could make to his game. And if he does get to that level. That's even scarier. Bruce Brown is going to be able to play essentially the perfect role for himself, which is taking two threes a game and being able to be a better off-ball slasher and cutter, which we know that those kinds of players were perfectly alongside Jokic because he is one of those Magic Johnson passers where he's just too tall and can see over everybody and make the pinpoint passes right where they need to be on time. So that works perfectly. KCP fills in that hole of we need a guy to put on the floor to guard the other team's best guard and provide some kind of resistance at the point of attack. So that's perfect. That makes sense. And the players that they got rid of, which would have been Will Barton and Monte Morris, Morris is probably the more perfect fitting out of those two. But he basically just stood in the way of Bones Highland, also who's going to be able to take a massive step forward and – who knows, he could be, if he messes around, could be the sixth man of the year this coming season, for all we know. So you now have one of those heat check guys coming off the bench who can get hot at any moment. Zeke Naji, I also like, is one of their under-the-radar prospects who has gotten considerably better each of these first two seasons and is ab- absolutely one of the best catch-and-shoot players to work alongside Nikola Jokic. There's also the potential signing out there of a under-the-radar move for a Joe Harris to bring to this team. This team, if we were to make just the rankings of the Western Conference after this W of an offseason, if they stay healthy, it's going to be them either getting somewhat outplayed by a team that just has too much in the way of wing depth to overwhelm the team. They could mess around and win it all this season, for all we know. I actually have... so. If I'm doing it on the regular season rankings, I have them as the third best team just like prematurely. If I had them as a playoff team, they're actually number one for me just because the theory of it is so good. Like my only concern, of course, is like the 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 elephant in the room is the Los Angeles Clippers because theoretically they could just kill Jokic and that team kind of like go bear with the versatility, five-out offense. They have two wings that are just awesome. But we're also in year four of like – if the Clippers are healthy and everything goes well, they can win it, which I've heard for three straight years, and I'm going to hear it again for a fourth year. If you're talking like, even if Murray's 85% healthy and Porter's just what he was before the back problems, that is still a championship team with Jokic because Jokic was winning 45 games playing with like, who was the next best player on that team? Was it Will Barden? It was Will Barden. No, it was no, it was not. It oh, was Aaron Gordon. Oh, I forgot about Aaron Gordon. But it, your best players were Aaron Gordon, Monte Morris, and Will Barden. And then it gets to Jermichael Green, Boogie Cousins after an Achilles injury. Like, it just falls off a cliff. Bones Highland. 
Yeah, Bones Highland. Who's uh, who is the big guy that like blew out his Achilles? Uh, God, not Darius oh, Baisley. They had, they had Plumley on the team a couple of years ago. <laughs> Plumley, man. Yeah. Uh, so like, I think Denver's in a great spot, and they're they're a clear winner to Utah, where they just like with the with the resources they had, they maximized it. I will say for for peak comedy. They were they were all in on DeAndre Jordan, man. Like within ten minutes of free agency, so this is now the fifth team if I'm counting right, because you now have New York, technically Dallas, because they almost signed him, and then New York, the uh, the Lakers, the Sixers, uh, the did I say the Knicks? Yeah, I said New York, and then now now Denver, where they're like yes. Oh, and, and I can't forget Brooklyn either. Brooklyn with signing him. The fifth team to be like, we're all in on DeAndre Jordan. And he might have been washed for the last decade, which is awesome. <laughs> you had those couple of great seasons where, you know, you're a big playing alongside Chris Paul. So you're going to do some great things. Yeah, maybe the most overrated all-NBA first team center ever besides Dave Callens. If we're actually looking at it, like... Oh, and Cowens is MVP, though. Yeah, and Cowens is MVP, so I can't even fault him. Like, if we're talking overrated centers, it's probably DeAndre Jordan number one and clearly no drop-off. So uh, here's the thing. So this is a winner in my heart, but I know it's maybe not a winner in your heart. I love Portland's offseason. Trading the Bucks first-rounder to get Jeremy Grant is a great deal for Portland. I, I, I joke that they really didn't have any forwards. It was just guards and centers last year, and that was it. So they get a forward. Simons, four for 100 is not bad, I think. Nurkic, four for 70 is not atrocious either. You still take Shaden Sharp with your seventh pick. So Shaden Sharp is a development project because this Dame thing clearly is going to be a long-term thing. I don't love the Dame Lillard extension this early because uh, he'll be paid $61 million for the final final year of that contract. And I think... 63. Oh, 63. When he's, 30, when he's 37. Yeah. So, so that part I hate, but in terms of the, hey, like, we're not going to tank. Dame is clearly committed. Let's put pieces around Dame. And the fact that they balance both the present and the future, I, I just, I mean, just from a, like, that sort of perspective, I love it. Because they were they didn't pull a Sacramento. Like, they didn't go all in for the 10 seed. Like, Portland can actually be good next year if, if Lillard is healthy. Yeah, they could. They could be also a team that's fighting for that play-in, and then Dame gets hot, and they win a game, and then they squeak into the eighth seed and get swept. But <laughs> it's again, it's one of those Western Conference things where you're like, this team is not going to compete among the top, but they're also just a team that nobody really wants to see if Damian Lillard gets on one of those crazy hot streaks. Well, and people, and I- Anthony Simons, who knows if he's already better than CJ ever was because he's certainly a better playmaker and he's certainly a better decision maker as well as a step back three point shooter. Well, and more importantly, I think that unlike McCollum, he has a smaller, I don't want to call it player profile, but maybe like, like I think he's more keen to playing next to Lillard than McCollum. Like, I think it was kind of like me turn your turn with McCollum and Lillard. Whereas like Simons can fit better in the offense. The other thing too is like, with, I mean, the thing with Portland is, like, this can also horribly go wrong because Jeremy Grant's going to need a four-year, $100-plus million extension at some point. So you could be locked into Lillard, Simons, Nurkic, and Grant for a de- half decade, and maybe it goes horrible. But I just think what they gave up, though, because it was basically this very protected Bucks first round from the holiday trade, and that's really about it to get all these guys to kind of fit in. The other thing, too, is I think this is what I was trying to get at. I think people, I think given how bad Portland was in 22, as well as Lillard's uh, injury, I think people forget how good he was in 20 and 2021. Like, Lillard is still, with his shooting and his ball handling, going to be a top, he's going to be a top five point guard, guaranteed. I still think he could be an all-NBA guy. Like, if he makes all-NBA second team next year, it would not shock me because he is that good. Yeah, I totally agree. When you're talking about the best point guards in the league, the only guys that are obviously better are Curry and Luka. Yeah, after that, it's like Trey Young, and then CP3 like, CP3 won't be that. Are you taking Jaw over Dame for next season? That That's tough, but maybe Jaw, but at worst, Lillard is the fourth best point guard. Yeah. So that, that's that's my next winner. I'm running out of winners here, so I want to hear your thoughts if you got any more. I mean, San Antonio's a big one just from the the the, like... 
choosing a direction similar to Gobert, peaking on the DeJounte Murray value because he made the all-star team, borderline all-NBA player, embrace the tank, the, the, Victor, the Victor games officially begin over who can get that guy. But I think from San Antonio's perspective, I just love the direction they chose. In the Western Conference, I think another dub would be the LA Clippers. If we're just talking about the ability to try and elevate their already sky-high ceiling in potential, this is now a team that most people have picked as the favorite to come out of the West, and maybe their favorite in the entire league. Again, like you mentioned, the when healthy, they might be the best. That's also something that we've heard since the moment that they acquired Leonard and George. And this season, it feels like it's more of that make or break similar to Philly where it actually needs to come together because they've made the Western Conference all they've made the Western Conference finals before, but Leonard and George haven't played a single game together in a conference finals. And John Wall, in theory, is probably their best guard to be able to put alongside those two because when he was at his best, which he's probably not going to get to anymore, anywhere close to, he's still a guy that is a positive playmaker and can be able to navigate you into the right sets, the right looks, especially in the half court, and puts an actual downhill pressure on teams the way that Reggie Jackson doesn't. When they had Rajon Rondo, certainly did not. And when you just look at the rest of this roster... Outside of the Toronto Raptors, is there really another team that has this many guys that are six seven to six nine that can guard multiple defenders or multiple positions and can be able to cover as much ground? I mean, Robert Covington, Nicholas Batum, obviously Leonard and George. Then they're also going to have Norman Powell. They're going to have Marcus Morris still. Terrence Mann. Ubots. Terrence Mann is still going to be on the team. That's wow, that is a lot of wing depth. And it's only scarier considering they have the perfect coach to be able to employ that kind of pressure because Ty Lu is totally that kind of coach. Well, the reason I like their offseason, I mean, technically their offseason in all honesty started at the trade deadline when they got Powell and Covington and they were like they they basically said by then this season is a lost cause because of Kawhi. So what we're going to do is just build and get assets for the future. And that's what they did with Powell and Covington. I like the Walt thing because I think we can agree their biggest weakness was playmaking and transition. John Walk actually gives them like a fast break element and a just defined traditional point guard. If he flames out, you're still going to be playing Reggie Jackson 25 minutes a night. You're still going to have these games closing with Kawhi, PG, and then probably three other forwards because they can incorporate that lineup. But I think for the regular season, it's just a, a guaranteed flyer for, for the Clippers. And, I mean, John Wall also shot 36% on catch-and-shoot threes when he's when he's been healthy. He's coming off a full year of total rest. Like, he's not going to need to play 40 minutes a night. He's going to play 15 to 20, maybe be the sixth man, maybe start. But he's not going to be having this huge role. So if it works out... You're talking about adding this, like, super, like, I call it, like, the super, it's kind of like Bob McAdoo in the 85 uh, Lakers, where just having a guy like that with that big of a name to just come in and be a microwave or just be a table setter, I think it's perfect for the Clippers. By the way, we're never comparing John Wall to Bob McAdoo ever again. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, was, I thought you were about to mention, you know, Bill Walton with the 86 Celtics. No, no, it's not, but the but it, but it makes sense, though, right? Because you just get a guy who can be... Yeah. Be, just change the pace, change the personality of the team, give you a different element. Like, I like it. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the kind of player that they're going to be adding. And if he is the ultimate answer to that kind of a need, then they certainly would have paid nothing for a guy that certainly helps them set the table and potentially get over the top. Okay. Do you have any more winners? Because I think it might be loser time. And there's a lot of losers again. <laughs> Yeah, there certainly are, and we can now get to them. Okay, I'll let, I'll let you go first. First loser, and you can it could be the worst one. <laughs> and you could say the Lakers if you want to say it now. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know what, I'll go with the Lakers. I'm not sure that they're the biggest loser, but 
Come on, Lonnie Walker is not going to answer much of those questions. Troy Brown Jr. I know should probably not be playing much on this roster. Well, they got. I always love when teams also sign their draft mistakes by getting back Thomas Bryant and uh, Damian Jones. I I love when teams do that. <laughs> well, yes, they've also done that. Which Thomas Bryant actually I don't have much problem with as long as he can actually play. But he's only played, I believe. 37 games in the last two calendar years he was also then, a, he was also abominable last season he, he was yes, horrible yes. But he was not good at all yes <laughs> then jta i actually do not have a problem with because you're getting him for almost nothing and even when he was playing with the warriors he was able to help them both offensively and defensively as more of a minimal catch and shoot kind of asset whereas defensively I've seen him play about as well defensively as anybody in the league on Mitchell, for example, whereas the only guys that I can think of that pose more problems for him are Dorian Finney-Smith, Herb Jones, Mikhail Bridges, similar players with those kinds of lanky frames that are able to influence a lot of shots and get in passing lanes. So the Lakers overall have taken an L this offseason because while I do like the signing of Darvin Ham as the coach, they still have Russell Westbrook on the roster, and that is con- going to continue to hurt them unless they were to be able to finally divorce with their 27 and 29 first-round picks that they are so desperately holding on to, where 27 and 29 first over or first-round picks, you don't even know who these people are. There's no way that you even have a draft board for that far in the future, so I'm not sure why holding on to those picks desperately when you know that you only have a couple of years left and of LeBron James at certainly this level or the MVP-esque level of LeBron James, whereas Anthony Davis, who knows what happens with him. This is a huge season for his entire career coming up. Time is of the essence, and it doesn't feel like the Lakers are pressing the right panic button at the right time. So there's a lot to unpack there, so I'll do these three points. I just don't know why the Lakers used their one avenue of improvement, which was the taxpayer mid-level, for a guard that has shot under 40% from from everything uh, last season who's not a good defender. So I don't know what they're seeing in, a, in, in Lonnie Walker. And the other thing, too, is I think the fact that they signed all these centers, I think the AD at center for the regular season, at least, won't happen. It'll probably be more AD at the four than the five. Also, because the Lakers just can't seem to get a quality wing next to LeBron and AD to just, like, be a four. So, AD stuck at the four. The other thing, too, is I kind of agree with you, and I had a Lakers fan on for another pod. And we talked about this, how the Lakers thing for the draft is actually not bad, their situation. Because in 2023, it's a swap, so they're going to get a first-rounder. They're losing one, but not both of the 24-25 pick. New New Orleans can defer 24 into 25. And then they can't give up their 26 and 28 because of the Stepien rule. So if they trade 27 and 29, they're still going to have both their, their first rounders in 26 and 28. So the bottom line is like, the only reason I see why they don't move it is maybe they think this team just can't win and they don't want to sacrifice all of this for Kyrie Irving or consequently... But then again, this Westbrook thing is so bad. Like, it, it, it's not even a divorce. It needs to be like... Uh, throw the the caravan you used for the wedding like off the cliff because it's just not it's not a good pairing it's a classic like this team will play better just without the guy if he wasn't on the team and I just don't like how the Lakers are gonna be playing this season and the entire time it'll be Russell Westbrook trade rumors like I don't know how Darvin Ham's gonna fix a team in constant turmoil if Westbrook's still on the roster no, I got to say, I agree for the most part. And that's why this Lakers team will probably be near the middle of the pack in the Western Conference again. Although they're also one of those teams that, hey, they could flip the coin on the other side. They see that they are one of the absolute title contenders. Wait, so let's play this game, actually. Golden State, Phoenix, Denver, and the Clippers, we both think are all better than the Lakers, correct? Yep. Okay, after that, I think Minnesota's probably better. I think, I think Dallas is the Grizzlies as well. The Grizzlies, Dallas, like it. What what's the highest the Lakers can finish? Like six or seven? Like at absolute, absolute best, right? Oh, I no, I actually think that they could certainly finish higher than that. You think what so? Okay. They, 
what would it take for Anthony Davis to turn back the clock a few years and actually play like an MVP candidate like he's supposed to be at this point of his career? There was just less than two full calendar years. We were talking about him as probably the best big in the NBA. He was and in the he was in the All NBA's top seventy five when uh and ever since that nomination, it's just been uh, all downhill for AD. Oh, even since before then. They snubbed Dwight Howard, who's had a far better career, in my opinion, than Anthony Davis overall. And now the guy really has, you know, gotten his flowers and decided to go home and just chill with his family. Like, there is a time for that, but that also happens when you're in your mid to late 30s towards the end of his career. He is still a 29-year-old and should be in the mix for the MVP, first-team All-NBA, etc. every season. We should be talking about him in the same sentence as Jokic and Embiid, but we're not. It, it's fascinating, too, because the AD legacy component of this, I think people had him in, like, their guaranteed top 70 to 65 ever. And then once, like, if you just look at it, in 21, it's Those a seven. Bubble. Yeah, it, it, ever since the bubble, in 21, it's a 72-game season. He plays exactly half the year. And in 22, he misses forty-seven game, or 44 games out of 82 games. And... The shooting, he's usually the worst jump shooting big man now in the league because if you just look at it, like 16% on threes, like there's he has no three pointer. He shot 36% in the bubble from three. And remember the, the Pelican, like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah, no, he was absolutely one of the best and now has completely taken that and flipped it on his head and is hitting half of the shots that he used to. Well, so, and the other thing too is it's, it's, the, it's the assets too because, like, I mean, one one thing we'll always talk about in, in NBA lore is, like, was the AD trade worth it? I think we'll both agree. I mean, I personally agree, yes, because they won a title, and there's so yeah, few titles. The only thing why. But seeing this just now collapse for the next half decade because LeBron's going to retire, and then you're going to have this AD guy who's already maybe out of his prime. Because at least so far, it's looked like he's, n- he's not the same as he was with the Pelicans or the first Lakers year. It, it's... It's multiple straight seasons of just disappointment where I don't know where he goes from here. Well, let me ask you this. Going to next season, if you were the Lakers, would you rather have Anthony Davis or Brandon Ingram? Oh, my God. Don't do this to me. Damn. I'd still say AD, but it's not. But it's very close. Yeah, the fact that you have to make me think about it is a problem because if you had said that in 2020 or tw- even 21, I would have been like AD and like, thank you. And never, never call the phone okay, again. But do that deal a thousand times, the same deal again. But now just a couple of years later, not even two full calendar years, we're talking about a guy that should be in his physical prime or at least near his absolute apex, which is a top five player or at least borderline in the league up there with the LeBrons, the Durants, the Lucas, etc. But I mean, well, speaking w- one last thing on, on kind of the all time conversations because we're gonna have a lot of we're gonna do some fun pods on that. But where's AD now in the all in like the best centers ever conversation? Like, is he more? Because originally I had like, do you think he's like Bob McAdoo kind of like that sort of territory? Is he more like Patrick Ewing, Robert Parrish? I don't think you can go higher than like that. I think like there's a clear. Like, Dwight Howard's better than him, I think, for sure, because of the resume. But where's AD kind of in your all-time rankings for at least the centers? Jokic is better than him, right, just because of the MVPs? Okay, so Jokic I actually have on the same tier when it comes to centers of Bill Walton and Dwight Howard all-time. Okay. And he is just – Jokic actually is just a hair behind George Mikan, or at least that's a player that I think would be the next center to fall in the all-time centers ranking. When it comes to Anthony Davis, among fours, I think that he is around the same level as Elvin Hayes. I agree. That's probably perfect. Yeah. Yeah, Elvin Hayes probably comes to mind. When it comes to other threes, he's probably on the same level as Bernard King, Paul Pierce, James Worthy, players of that caliber. Do you have him ahead of – I mean, I have him slightly ahead of Dave Cowens for the moment. So in my rankings, I have Anthony Davis. So keep in mind, this is before last season, so it's a little high for me, honestly. But I had him in like the 55, like he was in the 50 to 55 range for me. So I think I had Worthy like 54. 
uh, he was behind, like, he was ahead of, like, Bob McAdoo. He was in the same ballpark as Dwight, but he was kind of in, like, that 50s, that 50s ranking. Which, honestly, it wasn't far-fetched because he just came off a great 2020 postseason. And then even 21, like, the theory of it was still good. If you're talking now, though, I think he's probably in, like, the six, like probably more 60 to 65. Like, it, he, he's definitely tapered off a bit. I need to re-update my, py- my pyramid. Because we should be talking about him as a guy who is going to be at least in that Malone, Barkley, Garnett tier. Or even, like, the Ewing tier, where just, like, he could be a franchise guy, and even if it's not great, you still have a franchise guy. Like, he's not even in the Ewing category yet. And Ewing, I have, like, 40. <laughs> So it's okay. AD conversation history aside. Uh, next loser for you. Next loser for me. I really only other have. I really only have one other that comes to mind in the Western Conference among the relevant teams, which would be the Dallas Mavericks. Yes. Christian Wood. Okay, he would essentially be Hassan Whiteside with better offense than defense. And he makes sense playing alongside Luca as a stretch the floor big that can also post up and give you some nice offensive production. But man, I think Jalen Brunson just went into this offseason dead set on getting the bag versus at least hearing what Dallas can offer him. And that as a move alone right there significantly sets them back, I think. They were also a team that moved off of Trey Burke, who I thought still had the potential to be able to give them some nice minutes off the bench, especially without Jalen Brunson. But unless Tim Hardaway Jr. comes back and plays along or plays like the player he was a few years ago, they're going to have some significant holes on the offensive end outside of just Luca, who now has to do everything even more than he already did. So we're probably going to see some gaudy, essentially, new era standing numbers from Luca, where we might see him average the triple-double season like we thought we might get at some point, and that's why he's the current betting favorite to win the MVP. But this is a team that should get to that next level or at least look like they were on the verge of until Jalen Brunson let them know, I'm going to take the bag, I'm going to go to a team where I can have the rock in my hands as much as I want it, and that really, in turn, screwed the Dallas Mavericks because they didn't really make any other move to replace him. And they're in need of more secondary shot creation outside of Luka. I, I, so the thing is, like, at first I loved the Christian Wood trade, but that was assuming they kept Brunson and we're just going to play, like, this five-out offense. Luka would have needed this, like, pick-and-roll big man that could pop to, like, Wood. It's the asset play of losing Brunson. I also do love, I made this joke on another pod, but I'll make it again. I love when teams overpay for a player they were able to take advantage of in the playoffs with JaVale McGee. Like, the fact that they pick and rolled him to death in the Suns series, and they were, like, perfect for the regular season and the playoffs. What's taken for the full MLE. <laughs> I, I love when teams do that. They shoot themselves in the foot every time. But to be fair to Dallas, they're going to still have Spencer Dinwiddie. I love the Christian Wood trade. The Hardy guy they got in the second round is actually a steal for them in the draft. Like, he could yeah. potentially be a, a replacement for Brunson. It, but it's it's a matter of looking at the rest of the West. I did my rankings, and I was like, I can't have Dallas as of now higher than, like, six or seven. Just because the West is so good next year. And Dallas, I just hate when a Western Conference finalist is like, we're going to lose. Let's just let's just not bring our core back. Like, th- this team was, was three wins away from the NBA Finals. And they just let Brunson go for nothing. Not even getting back like an asset or a player or Fournier or whatever. Like that's it's 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 completely disrespectful to Luca. Well, I think the move out there at this point would be, what would D'Angelo Russell take? What would that take to call up Minnesota and try to weasel away a player like that to put alongside Luca? Because that's the exact kind of secondary production that I think makes sense as a catch and shoot player and more of a defensive force as more of a defensive coach on the floor because that's essentially what his role was in Minnesota. But other than that, I don't think there's a whole lot of players out there that can fill the spots of Jalen Brunson. And Hardy is a work in progress. That's not going to happen this season. Whereas Luka, 
he's got probably the next decade or so of putting up ridiculous numbers. And we're talking about him potentially as a guy who should be a top 25 player of all time and could be even higher. So I don't really have any more losers in the West, to be honest, because it's kind of str- – I mean, should we talk about – I don't think it's been mentioned enough. Is Golden State just – I mean, they're a loser just because they lost all of their depth, but they also have to replace it with these young guys they do have. Like, what are you expecting from the Kaminga, Moody, Wiseman trio? Because I think the Gary Payton loss is pretty big because he gave them a defensive identity – the Otto Porter loss isn't horrible, but he was pretty clutch in the finals and in the playoffs. And even Bielitsio was awesome in the Celtics series. So, like, I- I'm guessing Golden State's just going all in on DiVincenzo revival project, which they've done before, and we've joked about it before, and then these young guys. Well, what's funny about Dante DiVincenzo is I think the team that would welcome him back would be the Milwaukee Bucks right now. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so he'll be in Golden State which he's essentially going to play the Gary Payton role as more of a defensive stopper at the guard position, whereas Gary Payton, we talked about him as the mitten if his dad was the glove. Like, the guy is that good defensively when it comes to his steal percentage and his ability to just get his hands on the ball defensively. Their ability to re-sign Kevon Looney, though, it can't be overstated. They got him for a hometown discount as well because – most of the league thought that he was going to be in that $40 million to sometimes even $50 million if he were to have gotten a four-year deal elsewhere. He decides to take the hometown discount, return to the Golden State Warriors, and will continue to be just one of the better defensive centers when it comes to guarding up on ball as well as being able to teleport and run the baseline, trying to influence shots on the baseline there. So that makes sense. They're going to need more from their young guys, and this might be the time finally when Kuminga is asked to take that next step and James Wiseman walks into training camp actually healthy from day one next season. I'm actually not horribly mad at the Gary Payton thing either because with Gary Payton, he's actually already 29. People forget because he's just been – he just spawned out of nowhere for an NBA career. And remember, it's very it's – very, I won't call it Bruce Brown syndrome, but it's one of those where it's like – the best team for him to play on was Golden State. If you put him on any other team, he's probably like 10% worse. I don't think he'll be as good in, in with Portland as he was with Golden State. And also remember, they need to bring back Wiggins and Jordan Poole. And if you brought back Gary Payton, it would have been like luxury tax hell. So I'm not mad at the Warriors for that. What went on this note here with the with the Western Conference, assuming there's no more losers, you got to give me your perspective on the Minnesota thing here. Just from their angle what to expect with them in the regular season, the Gobert cat fit, the fact that they're they're going all in on this Gobert cat thing, and more importantly on Edwards just being good, like as Donovan Mitchell was. Like it, it's such a fascinating trade and a fascinating just move by Minnesota. Yeah, it's the leading and ending story of the offseason so far, I think. And the way that it plays out from Minnesota's point of view is You understand that you are overpaying, but the ability for Rudy Gobert to instantly transform a defense and take it already from a middling tier to one of the best in the entire league simply by him walking on the court is going to be so helpful. And I think that Cat is going to realize that right away, basically that all of his defensive mistakes will be completely washed out because when the league looks like they are going smaller, Minnesota is going the opposite direction where they're going to have the first twin towers that we've probably seen since Duncan and David Robinson in terms of their ability to do things on both ends of the floor. And knowing that one of them is going to be playing the Duncan role, which will be Carl Anthony Towns, we'll see them probably run a lot of high-low action where they post up Cat around the free throw line and have Gobert really in the dunker spot as well as a lob threat. Using Gobert as a screener offensively can even take this team to a whole new level. But really what this says more about anything to me is Anthony Edwards to the Minnesota Timberwolves means everything over the next decade, and they think that he can get to that supreme level of one of the best guards in the entire league. And if he does, then this team, they could mess around and make it all the way over these next three to five years. The other thing, too, is like, so Carl Anthony Towns with this extension's in until 2026. 
Gobert has a player option for 26. So their decision, it's just it's interesting because these players are on three different timelines. It's Cat in the middle of his prime. It's Edwards before the rookie extension kicks in. And it's Gobert on his second contract at super duper money. Prime, but he's still in his prime. Yeah, and, and kind of like at the prime, maybe falling off like in two years, let's say. let's We'll call it two years. So my last question then to tie into this is like, is this the new direction or is this more of a, a zig while everyone zags approach to the NBA? Because I honestly do think it's like with Milwaukee and Boston's success, I think people have relearned the value of having multiple bigs, especially if one of them can shoot or be a unicorn like Giannis or Tatum or – Robert Williams or some of those guys, but is this a, a common trend you think going forward for the the return of duo bigs, or is this just an admiration to try to just be different? No, this is not going to come back. They are going to be the one team that tries to do this, and we'll see whether or not their experiment pays off because it's completely different than any other dynamic of duo bigs that we've seen in the past because AD got to play with DeMarcus Cousins for less than 30 games, and the last, like I mentioned, that we saw of this would have been Duncan and David Robinson paid off with flying colors where the younger of the two guys was able to take the team on his back and take them all the way while David Robinson was a defensive force still but was still a wall in the defensive end and played mostly in the dunker spot as well as a slasher and lob threat, which is essentially what Rudy Gobert does almost better than anyone is – He's a great screen and roll player who can work great alongside a big that doesn't like to just get in the paint and body people up. So Minnesota is going to be one of the more forceful teams on both ends of the floor, and they're going to have great spacing on both ends. They're going to be a team that guards the rim and packs the paint and kind of returns the league to more of that mid-2000s level of defense where – if you go into the lane, just know that you're going to get your ass knocked out, basically. Well, after after almost two hours, we've covered probably all of the major moves for free agency and kind of gave our thoughts. There will be, with the NBA kind of dying down now until kind of September, there will be so many hypothetical conversations over all of these teams as well as where the hell the NBA will look like in 22-23. But, Micah, we kind of did it. Thank you for being on the pod. Pleasure as always. Thank you. Mine as well.